Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex again and I are very excited about this one. Go on, tell us, Alex, who we go on. Oh, so this man should be swanning it around the world, hanging out with Formula One people and getting paid to do so but then the bastard virus came so now kit has basically just become the history hack science boffin every time Alina and i have a stupid question about science we're like hey kit fix this for us it's kit chapman who you will all know from down the pub kit how are you doing yeah not too bad stuck in southampton still you know i've got do you know what my life has become today excitement today was a family of three squirrels sitting on a fence outside our windows looking in like they were going to break in and try and steal food and getting Bertie to go and eyeball them out at the window until finally after a stare out of 25 minutes the squirrels gave up and went away that is excitement in my life now yeah, fucking someone, squirrels someone wow. my bins last night that was kind of exciting someone robbed your bins yeah someone opened my bin up and started going through it last night <laughs> Alina, what constitutes excitement in your world right now? Are you ready for this? I think I'm going to trump both of you right now. Go on. A hedgehog. Oh, wow. Well, no, not just just a hedgehog, as in the staffy going mental for the hedgehog, trying to eat the hedgehog, but is too stupid to realise that he's getting pricked in the face, in the mouth, in the jaw and everything else. So, yeah, that's my excitement, cleaning up a staffy who's stupid. That's just your life, full stop. Your dog's a moron, Alina. I'm not, but even by dog standards, that dog is thick. He he can be very smart sometimes. To be fair, just it's stupid when it comes to like other animals. But yeah. anyway, anyway, Kit, today Hello. is a special day, and that's why you're here and why you've picked the topic you have. Can you explain for our listeners? Well, on the 16th of July, 1945, the world's first atomic bomb was detonated. Yeah, certainly it's something we would mark, not celebrate. Um, so you're here today to talk about the Manhattan Project, aren't you? I am. Uh, just uh, The US project to, to build the, 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 the atomic weapons during the Second World War, and we'll probably touch on sort of the, uh, the other powers and what they were up to as well. So can you start by telling us how long this idea had been floating about before they started the project? I'm, I'm guessing there were a multitude of different things that had to come together to formulate the Manhattan Project, but what were they? It, it is. It's one of those things that happens over the course of about 10 years. Um, and initially, there's a Hungarian scientist, Leo Slizard, who in 1934 comes up with this idea of a nuclear chain reaction. Um, apparently, he was crossing the road just outside the British Museum and it suddenly hit him. Um, and he also came up with the idea for nuclear reactors. But he doesn't know how to do it. Um, and this is with uranium, which is at the time the heaviest 
element we know about. And he thinks, okay, if we can only break it apart and release that energy, that would be amazing. But it's not until 1938, December 1938, that someone actually realizes you can actually split an atom and release the energy. Uh, and that's in Germany. There's a guy called Otto Hahn, and he's trying to replicate an experiment where someone thought they'd discovered a new element, a guy called Enrico Fermi in Italy. And he's looking at it and he's going, I haven't got this new element. I've just got bits of barium and krypton, which are much lighter elements. Something weird's happened here. And he writes to a colleague he used to work with, Lise Meitner. And she was a German-Jewish scientist who had fled to Sweden. And over the course of Christmas, um, hanging out with her nephew, uh, who's also a scientist, they suddenly realized that what's actually happened is the atom has split apart. It's broken. And if you can do that, you can release the energy inside. So in 1939, basically everyone suddenly takes an interest in how can we actually harness the power of, of breaking these atoms apart. Before we go any further, can we just rewind to the point where you mentioned Krypton? Is Kryptonite real? <laughs> Kryptonite is not real. Krypton is an element. Um, oh, it I'm was discovered less interested by a British guy, now. actually. God, just what so is excited it? about I know, Superman. you've just crapped it, all over my parade there. Go on, tell us what it is. Uh, it's an element that was discovered by a guy called William Ramsey uh, at, uh, in London. Um, he was a Scottish scientist, Lord Ramsey, and uh, he discovered Krypton, Xenon, Argon, and all these sort of elements that, that they're, they're called noble gases. They don't react with anything. <laughs> I can't believe you just ruined my fun. That's right. Thank Superman you. does come into this. There Excellent. is a story. Brilliant. So tell us about the Manhattan Project. Who was involved and what was involved in forming it? Well, a little bit before the Manhattan Project, in 1939, um, Leo Slezard gets Albert Einstein to send the President Roosevelt a letter um, just saying, look, uranium is one of those things that we could actually make a bomb out of the germans are going to do it you don't want the nazis to be first start looking at this and so a committee's formed called the s1 executive committee and it's got a whole bunch of nobel prize winners um you've got harold Lurie, you've got ernest lawrence um arthur compton these are all very famous sort of scientists of the day and they are really worried about it they're reporting into a guy called vannevar bush and over the course of the the next couple of years they start looking at things and the day before Pearl Harbor, uh, in December 1941, they meet uh, this uranium committee and decide, okay, we're gonna, we can make a bomb out of uranium, but we can also make a bomb out of this stuff that we've got that no one else has called plutonium. That had been discovered in the University of California in Berkeley by a guy called Glenn Seaborg. And he'd actually done it in an attic space. He was doing it in secret. And he was basically uh, running experiments, running up to this secret attic in the middle of the night, um, and uh, doing all these sort of chemical reactions with the balcony doors open. Apparently, he actually discovered plutonium. Well, uh, Arthur Ball, was the guy he was working with, discovered plutonium uh, in the middle of a thunderstorm, uh, sort of late at night, about 2 a.m., sort of cackling madly. Um, but they always remembered how stinky the attic was, which is stupid chemistry joke. Uh, on the periodic table, uh, plutonium should be PL, its symbol. It's actually PU because they remembered the attic stank. So there, it's poo. there is a fart joke on the periodic table. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I did not credit science as being it, that amusing. Oh, it's not the only joke. I mean, there's, there's lots of hidden jokes on the periodic table if you know where to look. You know, there, there's a cock joke on the periodic table. Oh, God, sh shove um, that in. <laughs> the, the, the guy's nickname was the cock. So he wanted to call the element gallium. He said it was after France, but it was actually after him. Um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the executive committee's meeting in uh, in 
America uh, in Washington, D.C., and they decide that they really need to ramp things up. Obviously, after the Japanese attack, the Americans really start going much faster. Now, previously, we've had um, what was uh, in Britain, we had what was called the Maud Committee. And it was named after Bizarre Telegram that uh, a very famous, again, scientist, Niels Bohr, sent someone say that ended Tell Maud Ray Kent. Uh, and everyone thought this was some sort of code. And he was actually meaning my housekeeper, Maud Ray, who lives in Kent. But they decided to call the committee the Maud Committee. And this information was passed over to the Americans, who realized the British were much further than they were when it came to designing atomic weapons. And the Maud Committee became what was known as the Tube Alloys Program in, in Britain. But in America, uh, they decided to put this guy, Leslie Groves, in charge um, in, uh, in 1942. And he has just finished uh, building the Pentagon. He's an engineer. He's a general. Um, and they put him in charge. And he selects Robert Oppenheimer to lead the scientific side of things. And Oppenheimer is a completely left field choice. He's not a Nobel Prize winner. He is not one of the big name scientists but he turns out to be the ideal guy to bring all of this together. And how does he start to do that? What's the early development like? Where's it taking place and, and how is it all smooth sailing or is it just an absolute nightmare? Is it all theoretical at this point and nobody has any idea how to get to grips with the practical idea? The American program, the Manhattan Project, actually goes really, really smoothly. Um, in Germany, their project is a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, Isn't everything with the Nazis? Uh, yeah, it, it is. It is literal Nazi screw-ups. Um, it's led by a guy called Heisenberg, who most people will know from, from Breaking Bad. Um, and they call it the Uranium Club. And they, it is just an utter disaster. They can't get anything going. And when the, uh, the Nazi regime falls and people can actually check out how far along they've got, it's kind of embarrassing. The Germans are absolute disasters. The Americans, uh, what they do very sensibly is they break things up into different areas. And so um, Arthur Compton goes and leads uh, what's called the Met Lab, the, the Metallurgical Laboratory in Chicago. And he brings in uh, Enrico Fermi, the, the Italian guy. He'd actually fled, um, he, he'd fled Mussolini using his Nobel Prize. Um, he won the Nobel Prize the night after the Kristallnacht in Germany. Uh, and his wife was Jewish. And realizing that, Jews were going to be persecuted in Italy. Uh, he very cunningly uh, said to Mussolini, my wife and I and the kids, we're just going to go and get my Nobel Prize and I promise I'll come right back. And of course, <laughs> legged it as fast as he could to America. That's smart. Good for him. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so that's going on in Chicago. Uh, and they're working out, Fermi is given the task of trying to build a nuclear reactor because the problem with plutonium is you need to scale up its production about a billion times. And to give you an idea of what a billion times is like, if you took a football and you blew it up a billion times, it would be the size of the moon. So <laughs> we need to mass, mass produce plutonium. And he's kind of get, told to do that in Chicago. Uh, he decides to build a nuclear reactor underneath the sports stadium of the University of Chicago uh, in Stagg Field. Uh, it's called the Chicago Pile. And it is basically just a stack of, um, of, of graphite uh, that is built underneath the bleachers in what was a, a squash court. So that's going on in Chicago. The problem is that they need a top secret base to really do this. You can't have people finding out in the middle of Chicago that you're building a nuclear weapon. Mm. And so they decide to occupy this 12 mile long valley just outside Knoxville in Tennessee. And they kick out all the people living there. They, they, people come back from church and they find notices on their door saying you've got 30 days, get out. 
and they build uh, what becomes known as the secret city there. Uh, they can't really call it the secret city because obviously people might think that's a bit strange. So they end up calling it Oak Ridge because they think that that's kind of an innocuous name that no one's going to pay attention to. Mm. And they basically, like I say, build a city that no one goes in or out of. And all kinds of strange people end up in this city. Um, the cafeteria, the assistant cafeteria manager was uh, a guy called Harlan Sanders, uh, who would later call himself Colonel Sanders and found Kentucky Fried Chicken. So I you love get the all, way you've got KFC into this. It's all kinds of weird people <laughs> that end up in, in this place in Tennessee. Uh, there's also another major area uh, in Los Alamos, which is in New Mexico, and that's where they actually design the bomb because you need to have several strands. So in Chicago, they work out the, the chemistry. In Oak Ridge, they work out how to actually mass produce uh, the uranium, the type of uranium they need and the type of plutonium they need. They then get another site uh, up in Washington called Hanford where they actually mass produce the plutonium. And then it all comes together in Los Alamos with the bomb. But there's lots of these other little satellite places as well. There's one in Iowa, there's one in St. Louis, there's one in California. It, it covers the entire country. It's 130,000 people by the end of the project. You've mentioned Germany and Britain, but don't Japan have a programme as well? Yes. Uh, so the Japanese try and look at an atomic bomb and they, they call it the NIGO project, N-I hyphen go. And the, the NI in that is Yoshio Nishina. And basically, he kind of uses the bomb project as a con job. He tells the Japanese uh, military command he needs all of these materials. What he really wants is just better machines so he can do normal research. And so he starts funneling all of this atomic bomb stuff that should be going for Japan just into his own research. Um, even so, they did have a, a probably a more successful program than Germany. Uh, there is evidence that um, Germany tried to ship them uranium towards the end of the war. Some uh, U-boat was captured with all this un, unenriched uranium trying to get Japan to build an atomic weapon. But the guy who was just doing it was just conning the entire system. The one country that doesn't have a nuclear program until very late on is Russia um, because Stalin is convinced that metallurgy is the best way to go. So he assigns all of his scientists to look at, um, at metallurgical projects. And there's a guy on the front lines called Georgi Flerov. Uh, he's a lieutenant in the, he's an engineering guy in their, in their volunteer air force. And he likes to read physics journals for fun, which is kind of a sad hobby, but there yes, we go. a little bit <laughs> yeah, comes off the front line, starts reading physics journals. And he notices that absolutely nobody whatsoever is speaking about nuclear fission, which is the process that releases all this energy for an atomic weapon. And so he writes a letter to his boss and his boss says, shut up, Flarov, this is way above your pay grade. He writes a letter to his former teacher, a guy called Igor Kurchatov. And Kurchatov says, look, don't question Stalin. People get disappeared if they question Stalin. And eventually... He gets to the end of his rope and he writes a really bitchy letter to Joseph Stalin. <laughs> and I mean, the, le the letter begins, you know, dear Joseph, you need to listen to me. I am banging my head against a brick wall here. Um, he doesn't hold back. And Stalin receives the letter in person. Um, <laughs> it was sent to him in the Kremlin. Uh, and he's very, Flarov is very lucky because just as his letter arrives, a load of top secret intelligence arrives suggesting that the Allies are working on an atomic weapon. And he puts the two together and goes, actually, this Flarov guy knows what's, what's happening. Flarov becomes a lieutenant colonel and suddenly he's, he's away and, and running. And they build their atomic pro program in 1942. 
but they lose a bit of a step on everybody else. I mean, the Japanese have got one, the Germans have got one, the British have got one, which sort of blends in a little bit with the uh, the American one, which is the Manhattan Project. I absolutely love it. Just, if in doubt, write to Stalin and piss he's, him off. He's so lucky. I like when you're, you're saying, you're like, oh, and he wrote this letter and I was like, oh my God, he's going to die. Yeah, so <laughs> this is die. Stalin. Yeah. <laughs> You'd think so. He's He actually lives until 1990, uh, Georgi Flarov, and he... He's so lucky. He's, he's at the first Russian test, which is called First Lightning. Um, the Russians did a very strange idea of the test. They were worried that, that the bomb wasn't going to go off, the, the Russian-designed bomb. So they'd stolen the plans from the American bomb and blew that one up, knowing it would work and Stalin would be cool with it. Um, they were yeah. sort of worried about their jobs. I, I love the overriding... Um common themes that emerge in Soviet development and Nazi development, which is just, it's nonsense, isn't it? And that's the reason, I guess, why the Manhattan Project is the successful one. So tell us about some of the breakthroughs. How do they get from just bringing all this stuff together? What are the key points that get us to the point where there are nuclear weapons? Well, one of the key points, as I mentioned, is this idea of developing nuclear reactors, which allows you to, to make the plutonium that you need. But you also need to refine your uranium. So uh, you need a special type of uranium called uranium-235. Um, and that's only about 0.7% of u- normal uranium ore. So you need to sort of uh, refine it and, and, and get this enriched uranium. And they tried different methods. They've got uh, electromagnetic racetracks they set up. They build uh, this, the largest building in the world at the time to do gaseous diffusion they try other techniques. Um, eventually, they all sort of come together and actually combine. And so it's all of these multiple strands that sort of entwine to actually make the project a success. And it's really down to, as I say, Robert Oppenheimer and Leslie Groves, these two people who are the least un- uh, you know, likely people you, you would have picked to run this project. They are not big names at all. Most people will never have heard of General Leslie Groves. And yet they are the people that actually make it all work. The big problem they've got is whether to use a uranium bomb or to use a plutonium bomb. So, and a uranium bomb is pretty straightforward. If you send uh, what's called a neutron, a neutrally charged particle, into a cluster of this uranium, uh, if you've got enough of it, then you can start a chain reaction that will break apart and that will release more neutrons and they'll break other atoms apart and boom, 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 you're off to the races. The plutonium bomb is more difficult because... Like I say, you need to actually create plutonium and it's much harder to, to get what you call the fissile isotope, the isotope you want. And so they actually have to implode it. And that's where you get the, um, the fat man bomb, this giant swollen bomb, because you have to implode it to get it to work. Um, and so the first bomb that goes off is a plutonium bomb, not because uh, there's any particular reason for it, other than they weren't sure it was going to work. They were sure the uranium bomb would work, and that had already been loaded off to a ship called the USS Indianapolis, which, uh, which sailed off to deliver it to the planes that are going to bomb Japan. But the, they're not sure about plutonium, and so that's why they test it in the New Mexico desert on the 16th of July, 1945. Before we get to the tests, there must have been some sort of war, intelligence war. Can you talk to us a bit like spies uh, about the spies and, and what happened there? Yes, I can, because this involves Superman. Boom. So. <laughs> Alex is so happy right now. I, I am. Not Christopher Reeve, though. Uh, not him. No, no, no not Christopher Reeve. What? Um, so in, uh, in, in DC Comics got raided by the FBI 
for leaking state secrets over the end of the Manhattan Project. <laughs> Are you serious? Absolutely serious. So April 1945, um, the, the, the feds turn up. And Superman has been uh, doing this, uh, there's a bit of a strip where he's gone to a university and he's hanging around with a scientist and he's got what's called a cyclotron. Now a cyclotron is a type of particle accelerator. It takes particles in the center and it's like a reverse whirlpool. It spins it out and out and out until it goes faster. And this is kind of important when it comes to making atomic weapons. Um, And it's certainly how they discover plutonium. And the feds are going, how do they know about cyclotrons? This should be a state secret. Uh, Superman in the strip jumps into it and it says, no, Superman, don't be stupid. You'll be bombarded with, you know, 13 million volts of particles. All, that. all the numbers were correct. They were really worried about where, where they got this idea. And it turns out that, uh, well, first off, cyclotrons were well known because someone had won the Nobel Prize for discovering them. Um, but they'd literally taken it from a copy of Popular Mechanics in the 1930s. They just literally copied the page. So there was no security breach whatsoever. But because they were so worried about this strip tipping people off about what they were doing, uh, they suddenly switched it mid-strip to a game where Superman was playing baseball against himself. You know, he's doing all the things on the pitch. So, so basically, it's, they're ridiculously worried about DC Comics. And DC Comics never forgot this. Um, they later created a villain called Cyclotron. Um, <laughs> just, just yeah, I want my idea back that I didn't steal from the government. <laughs> exactly. Just, just to sort of stick it to the feds, they create these villains called Cyclotron and Nucleon, which are the, the things that they try to conceal. Um, so in, in answer to your question, there is a huge, a huge blackout. Um, there's a lot of really stupid stuff that goes on. Uh, there's a scientist called Richard Feynman who keeps getting frustrated by how pathetic things are. So he tries to see what he can sneak past the sensors. Uh, And he sort of drops in little code words. And because the sensors obviously don't know the really top secret stuff, the code words get through, but the innocuous stuff doesn't. Um, And uh, he's just sending it to his wife. Uh, He goes around cracking safes in Los Alamos, this place where they're building the bomb, and sort of taking out the the nuclear codes and leaving little notes saying, ha-ha, we've got your secrets, signed the Nazis. (laughs) Things like that. He's just goofing off. Um, at one point, he, for some reason, he dressed up as a Native American and started doing drumming in the middle of the night to scare people. I mean, he's a very odd chap, um, and that sort of ties in with uh, with the rest of his life. But uh, yeah, there's there's a concentrated effort to keep everything quiet. Uh, Oak Ridge, as I mentioned, is known as the secret city. Uh, very few people go in and out. Uh, in fact. Most U.S. fast food chains tie into this. Uh, Dave Thomas, who founded Wendy's, also lived in Oak Ridge uh, and was sort of stuck there and, uh, and obviously later on developed this fast food chain. And the guy that drove in and out founded Waffle House. So for some reason, you know, this confinement um, and this sort is of... Is responsible for America's obesity problem. Is responsible for the obesity epidemic, yeah. Wow. Uh, in terms of the secrecy for the British, obviously they told the Americans um, and... The, the Tube Allies project was largely kept mostly secret. They managed to recruit Niels Bohr, the guy I mentioned earlier. Uh, he flew over, he fled uh, Denmark, and then he managed to fly over in a mosquito to, to Britain and he joined them. The one person who isn't involved, that everyone assumes would be, is Albert Einstein. He has no part whatsoever in the Manhattan Project. He's bombing around a university, isn't he, at this point? Yeah, he's at Princeton. He's, um, he's, he's a pacifist. And also, they've got a big problem in that He's technically an enemy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you no, just dispelled a, 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 a myth for me because I totally thought Einstein was involved. 
Yeah, he's not. I mean, he, he sends this, what's known as the Einstein letter, and he sends several letters, but he didn't write the letter. He just signed it. Um, he was not involved in the Manhattan Project. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Oh, poor Elena. Anyway, let's <laughs> <Sorry>. move on. <laughs> you're just dispelling. You're just crapping all over us today. But Superman and KFC have been in there. We're still intrigued. Um, right. So we get to the point of testing. So talk us up to Trinity. How do we get to that one, which is the okay. one that everyone's known of? And then you can crap on everybody's parade again with the quote. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> you know, I know exactly what's going on. So the guy put in charge of Trinity is, um, is Kenneth Bainbridge. And they decide to do it. Um, in a place called White Sands Missile Testing, which makes sense. Um, it's what's now known as. It's in the middle of a desert called the Jordanda del Muerto, the journey of the dead man desert. I've actually been um, there. You know, I've seen the missile garden and um, been to White Sands National Monument as well because it is actually, actually named after a desert place where the sand is pure white. I'll put a photo on Twitter for you all. There you go. Um, I've, I've been to the Trinity site as well. Um, surprisingly unradioactive these days. Um, and uh, and seeing sort of the fat man bomb and yeah as you know it is in the middle of nowhere it is this massive desert space uh, I think the furthest the, the nearest town is a place called Socorro um, but uh, Albuquerque is sort of north of it by about 100 miles south 100 miles is um, a place called Elephant Butt if I remember correctly um, Elephant Butt and Truth and co- Truth or Consequences yeah, and then and these, it, and New Mexico is a is a weird place, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is a very weird place. Um, anyway, they decided to do the test there because it's remote, um, and initially they actually planned to blow up the nuclear bomb inside a giant metal case, which they call Jumbo, um, because they're worried that they're going to lose the plutonium. They think if it doesn't work, they're just going to scatter plutonium around the desert, and that's going to be a disaster. So let's blow it up inside this giant metal case. In the end, the scientists convinced the military, let's not do that. But they've still got this bastard giant metal case thing, um, which they eventually just blow up for fun, as best I can tell. Uh, it's still there in the, um, in the desert. And you can What's disturbing of- about this is they're not actually totally sure that they're not going to end the planet when they start testing these things, are well, no, they? No, absolutely not. Um, Enrico Fermi went around the night before the test telling everyone that it's going to set the sky on fire uh, and just keep burning until it destroys our atmosphere. And yet they <laughs> didn't fine. think, let's not do it. Well, it's like turning on the Large Hadron Collider, you know, this idea that there was a sort of a one in a million chance it might create a black hole that sucks up the universe, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a calculated risk. And remember, they're at war here. You know, they're looking for a way to save lives. Uh, ironically, by ending them, of course. Mm. Um, 
And so they decided to blow it up in, the, in this place in the, in the middle of the desert, um, which is now known as the Trinity site. Uh, they don't use Jumbo, um, but uh, what they do is they hoist up the bomb onto a 30-meter tower, and they're going to drop it. Uh, they scatter observers sort of nine kilometers away, the nearest ones are. Uh, there's a little house called the McDonald Ranch House, and the McDonalds were obviously told to leave um, <laughs> a long time beforehand. And on the 13th of July, three days before the bomb actually goes off, they bring in the, uh, the, the core of the plutonium. It looks like a, a sort of a giant softball. It weighs about a stone, just less than a stone. Uh, a guy called Herbert Lear bring, brings it in. There's a photo of him doing it. He's got a white shirt on. He's got Because he's in the middle of the desert. It's boiling hot. He's not wearing a uniform or anything. Um, it's just this specky git in a white shirt bringing in the case. And uh, he takes it into what was their bedroom. And inside the McDonald boudoir, uh, they've taped up the windows with, uh, with sort of sheets. And a Canadian guy, Louis Slotin, he takes the bomb and he arms it and gets it ready. They take it over to to the, the actual bomb itself, uh, the, the fat man bomb. And on this tower, they, uh, they get ready to, to blow things up. I'm sitting at the edge of my seat right now. I'm like, it's so going to go wrong. Is it going to go wrong? Well, Kenneth Bainbridge, as I said, the guy in charge of the test, was really worried about that because if the bomb didn't go off, his job was to drive out to the tower, climb up, and poke the bomb to see what happened. Bugger that. Oh my God. <laughs> which has to be like the worst job in history yeah um, and yeah he said that you know, so that's micro- literally it's a nuclear bomb and it's like hit it with a screwdriver isn't yeah, it yeah that's that's all you can do hit it with a screwdriver here alex here's a stick go poke a nuclear bomb yeah how about no well he, he <laughs> writes you know the, the the night before all he could think about was if the bomb hang, hang fired you know what was he going to do um and he's the poor sod doesn't even hide in, in a nuclear bunker. Um, so you've got Oppenheimer in a bunker sort of uh, cowering down. Everyone's been told not to look at the, the flash. Um, Richard Feynman ignores that. He's parked up in a car and he works out because he's an insane physicist that the light will actually refract through the windscreen of his car. So he just sits in the car and watches the bomb go off. Um, I love that he's that confident. <laughs> Bearing in mind they're not sure they aren't going to set the sky on fire. This guy's I, confident enough to stare at it. A lot of people, I mean, they were placing bets on what was going to happen. A few people thought it was going to be a minor explosion. Some people thought major. Um, way over on, on one of the mountains, you've got the, uh, the British guy, Chadwick, James Chadwick, another Nobel Prize winner, actually discovered the neutron. He's with Groves and a bunch of other people. And uh, they're all sort of there. Um, Bainbridge is lying down on a rubber mat with his head down, hoping that the bomb goes off. And this is all done right in the, mo- the start of the day. So the bomb actually goes off 5.29 a.m. Um, I think it was supposed to be 5.30 and they just let it off a little bit too soon. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, and it's, it's one of those strange moments where there's this sort of awkward silence. There's a countdown. Everyone's not entirely sure what's going to happen. Um, and then finally, the bomb. Uh, there's people flying around on planes as well. Another Nobel Prize winner, future Nobel Prize winner, Luis Alvarez. He's actually observing it on a plane to see what will happen with the mushroom cloud. And then... Delay happens, the bomb drops, and pretty much immediately, two, uh, 20 kilotons of uh, the equivalent of 20 kilotons of dynamite blow up. Um, there is a 200 meter mushroom cloud that zooms up. Uh, eventually, it will stagger up to 7.5 miles. Um, there is a 76 meter crater that appears in the desert. 
the actual sand of the desert uh, through the heat and the uh, just just the sheer force of everything going on actually crystallizes into this strange green glass that they call trinitite. Um, side note, the trinitite is now collected by ants for some reason. They are addicted to radioactive green glass. Um, is that where Ant-Man the- comes from? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> it came from the desert, these mutant ants. Um, these days, people actually have to go around with Geiger counters and they find ants' nests where they've, they've gathered this trinitite. It's illegal to take it off the site. Mm. Um, the shockwave of the bomb going off uh, is felt 100 miles away. And so they kind of have to explain to, to some people why their windows have been blown out. Um, and they just say it's an ammo dump explosion. It's, it's a flimsy excuse, but obviously people have no idea, no concept of a nuclear bomb and what it can actually do. They don't know it exists. And so everyone just takes this as, as gospel truth and they believe them. Um, the bomb explosion is a complete success. It's one of those strange projects, um, particularly in science, given the scale of things, given the number of people involved, that just goes right. There is no hiccup in the Manhattan Project, really. Everything pretty much goes right. Um, after the Manhattan Project, everything's a disaster. Uh, the Hanford site, where they, they did all the plutonium, is now known as the most radioactive and poisonous site in America. Um, no one goes in, no one goes out, really, apart, unless you're sort of heavily trained in radioactivity because it is just polluted to death. Um, but uh, for the most part, everything just sort of goes right. There are no disasters. There are no major leaks uh, initially. The, there is uh, a guy um, who, who later leaks things to the Russians. And the relationship with the British very abruptly ends. And the Americans keep all of the discoveries and don't tell the British what they've got <laughs> after the war. But up into Trinity, pretty much the Manhattan Project goes as best as they could have planned. And I appreciate it's a, a terrible, horrible thing they created. But... Um, in terms of the actual science and things like that, there are very few sort of major hiccups. There's a couple of sort of smaller incidents, um, in, particularly in the plutonium. At one point, someone drops a brick on the, all the world's supply of plutonium, uh, and the, the flask leaks and is soaked up in a newspaper, and they have to extract it from the newspaper, uh, the Chicago Tribune. Um, <laughs> At one point, someone holds the holds a vial too tightly, and actually, it snaps in his hand, and suddenly he has beads of plutonium uh, all over in his actual flesh. This has to be gathered up individually by someone using, you know, they're they're dealing with what's called ultra microchemistry. So you're dealing with substances that you can't even see, um, and they have to gather all this stuff up from his hands. He is not allowed to eat with his hands uh, in case you know he swallows plutonium and dies. Um, for for a couple of, of weeks, all of these sort of little things do happen during the project. But on the main, in, you know, on the whole, especially compared with the German project, which is an absolute disaster, uh, and the Japanese project, which is just basically Yoshio Nishina conning people into funding his research, it goes very well. So they now have a bomb that works, but now they've got to militarize it. So how do you get from a working bomb to Hiroshima? and Nagasaki? Well, Hiroshima is a uranium bomb. So the, the working bomb is the plutonium. They've, that's the one they're testing. They're not sure that's going to work. They've already actually loaded the uranium bomb at this time onto the USS Indianapolis. And the Indianapolis ships it over to uh, one of the Pacific Islands where it's loaded onto the Enola Gay, um, one, of the, uh, one of the bombers. And then it's just a matter of, as I say, dropping the bomb on Hiroshima. 
Um, the Indianapolis suffers a terrible fate going back, as anyone remembers. The, do you remember the movie Jaws? Yeah, this is the shark one, isn't it, in the Pacific? This is, this is the shark one. Um, so, uh, so yes, uh, on the way back, it is torpedoed by a, a Japanese submarine. Uh, because of it's it's said because of the secrecy of the uh, of the mission they didn't send a distress signal it's not quite that way they they didn't expect a submarine in the area they weren't zigzagging because they didn't expect a sub a submarine um and their torpedo had sunk uh, 800 men go into the water and then for the next couple of days because no one knows that they're missing sharks eat them um essentially uh, hundreds of people are die uh, from shark attacks um, and very few people managed to get get out. Captain um, uh, McVeigh actually does. Um, he survives, uh, but later he commits suicide um, just from the weight of everything. Tell us, what was the reality of the bomb that went off in Hiroshima? Horrific um, is the simple way to put it. Um, the bomb going off at Hiroshima killed, I think it was 70,000 people uh, eventually. Um, 13 kilotons of TNT, the people who were caught up um, in the closest vicinity would have essentially been vaporized. The people on the outskirts um, would have found themselves being set on fire. Um, a little bit further away, the radioactivity would start obviously to, to have an effect. The casualties are catastrophic. The um, impact, it's not just military targets. Obviously uh, you're bombing a town. There were women and children that were killed. Uh, there were a large number of people who were interned uh, in there as well, and they were killed. So the effect of the bomb was catastrophic. Um, and Japanese construction at the time was largely obviously wood. Um, so um, any buildings that were left standing, and there weren't many, uh, suddenly had a firestorm raging. Uh, Hiroshima is just, it's just staggering to try and imagine it. Um, and this is, as I say, dropped by the Enola Gay on the uh, on 6th of August. Um, Yoshi Nishina is actually asked to come down um, by the Japanese military, um, the, the sort of the, the command, to analyse what's gone on. And he immediately sees this, and he knows exactly what's happened. Um, Truman sends a letter to the Japanese uh, telling them that we have got an atomic weapon. And Nishina is asked to confirm, is this, is this what this is? And they say yes. Um, obviously, there is a second bombing as well. Um, Nagasaki... Nagasaki, in terms of casualties, I think is actually less than Hiroshima, um, largely because it's in a valley. Um, but it's on the 9th of August, and it's a far more powerful bomb. It's as powerful as the one that went off in the desert, Trinity. 21 kilotons of, t of TNT um, equivalent. And it was never actually meant to be the target. Um, the original target was, was sort of clouded over, and they, they, they went to a secondary target. I, th I think it might have been the tertiary target, Nagasaki. But um, the, the devastation and the death toll is just something you can't imagine. And the crazy thing really is that we didn't stop there. These were the most powerful and destructive weapons that had ever been used. And for the next essentially 10 years, um, people worked to perfect those, um, particularly a guy called Teller. Um, he works um, at uh, Livermore just outside San Francisco. And he uh, comes up with uh, with uh, called uh, Ulam Stasol Ulam. They come up with a um, a thermonuclear weapon, uh, which uses uh, heavy extra neutron versions of hydrogen, 
And because of that, it's known as the hydrogen bomb. This is far more powerful than those bombs combined. Um, we're talking kilotons for the um, Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombs. That's thousands of tons. When the thermonuclear weapons go off, because there is a more complete reaction, we're talking megatons, millions of tons. Um, they test it in a place called Inuitak Atoll on 19, uh, 1952 in November. And uh, during Ivy Mike, Operation Ivy Mike, they detonate the bomb on an island called Ujlab, uh, in the Marshall Islands on this Eniwetak Atoll. And if you Google Eniwetak Atoll now uh, on Google Maps, you can see where Ujlab must have been because there is a beautiful coral reef atoll and right at the top of the horseshoe, there is a giant blue circle where Ujlab was literally blown off the map. It is just a trench now in, in the sea. Um, the devastation that, that these bombs create is astonishing. I think as well, when you, you move up into the realms of thermonuclear war, and that's when you start talking about the fact that man's greatest achievement possibly is never using those weapons on each other. Uh, a lot of people who worked in the Manhattan Project um, would go on to become passionate uh, advocates for never using the, the weapons and to try and control them. Uh, the guy who discovered nuclear fission, um, Otto Hahn, um, as I mentioned, he was German. He wasn't a Nazi, I should point out. He actually helped um, Jews escape from, from Germany. Uh, he didn't want any part in the Nazi um, bomb project. But he was rounded up after the war and taken to a place called Farm Hall, just outside uh, God Manchester in, uh, in Huntingdon in, in Cambridgeshire. And when he heard that the bomb had gone off, he knew immediately it was because of nuclear fission and he thought about committing suicide. Um, he was actually uh, bugged. Uh, and he was with ardent Nazis like Heisenberg in that place. Um, Glenn Seaborg, the guy who discovered plutonium, he spoke at length about uh, sort of how he felt about it. He always said that initially he was, he was actually happy to have used the bomb, um, largely because relatives of his uh, who were in the Marines kept coming up to him at family meetings, gatherings, just thanking him that they didn't have to go to Japan and fight. But he, uh, he becomes chairman of the, um, uh, the Atomic Weapons Commission, uh, sorry, Atomic Energy Commission, uh, under uh, Kennedy, and he stays there uh, for the next couple of years. Becomes a very close friend of Lyndon Johnson's. Um, and yeah, they actually had um, they were such good friends that Lyndon Johnson would create fake meetings for them in the Oval Office, so they could just go and watch TV and hang out. <laughs> uh, and um, and he uh, is one of the key advocates that drives this uh, this ban on on nuclear testing and nuclear weapons testing. Uh, and creates a load of, of treaties so that we actually end nuclear testing above ground in uh, the 1960s. Uh, it's just one of those things that, um, un unfortunately, now certain governments are trying to sort of scale back on those treaties, and uh, we need just to remember that these weapons, there is a reason that we do not use them. 100%. Um, thank you so much, Kit, for coming on to mark this date, which is obviously the anniversary of the, test, the Trinity test and the beginning of nuclear warfare. It, def it really is a cautionary tale, isn't it, of, of just because you, you can doesn't mean you should. Um, I always think so. Um, I think that uh, it, it's, it's fascinating how, how much it affected the lives of everyone involved. Um, and obviously it changed the world. It literally change the world not only our attitudes to uh, to uh, warfare not only the horrific casualties that it caused in japan 
but also it actually changed the composition of our atmosphere. Um, to this day, when we actually launch satellites and things like that, we have to have what we call low background steel. Um, and the process of making steel brings in things from the air. There are elements still of the atomic bomb tests in our atmosphere that means that we cannot use steel that we make. And so these days, uh, they used to anyway, uh, dive down into Scapa Flow and use the remnants of the German high seas fleet um, because obviously the steel wasn't affected. It was already created at the time um, before nuclear weapons. So we, we literally changed the composition of our world with these bombs. And just quickly, do tell us, because we mentioned it and then we didn't cover it, the quote from Oppenheimer, we have <laughs> Sorry, become yes. destroyer of worlds. Yes, Rubbish, the, isn't the, it? The, the, yes. So he, he later claimed that, uh, that he, he said the, the, the quote from the Bhagavad Gita, um, I am become death, destroyer of worlds. Uh, he never said it. Um, the first person to speak after the bomb went off was Kenneth Bainbridge. Uh, he got up from his rubber mat. He walked over to Robert Oppenheimer and just said, now we're all sons of bitches. Yeah, which I think, other than just dropping the F-bomb as you saw it go up, is far more realistic, isn't it? It is. It's, 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 it's one of those sort of uh, lines in history. The other one is obviously the things at Waterloo, you know, the, um, the, the final word of the old guard and things like that. It, the, there's, there's these mythos about what's actually said, whereas I think what's actually said at the time is often far more prosaic and far more uh, <laughs> correct. Thank you. Um, you have to come back and we have to do a podcast on historical nut jobs because we've had some fun with those on Down the Pub, haven't we? We have. There are some very, very strange people in science. Yes, and uh, we, we should <laughs> laugh at all of them in future. Thanks very much. Join us tomorrow when Josh Proven will be with us talking all about his book Wild East, which is about Japan in the 1860s um, and Japan opening up to the West and how cultural changes occurred and the British moved in and, and basically how Japan suddenly, instead of looking in on itself, looked out and became part of the global community. It was really interesting. We will also be bringing you, Alina is insistent that we bring you this back chat. So to replace our weekly down the pub sessions, just a quick brief chat for you to listen to on a 15 minute break or whatever um, of us talking nonsense about history. The first one she's had us do is if I had a time machine. So that's me and her discussing all the places we go and all the things we do or not do or avoid or sort out. Um, that was good fun. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 